This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. We are here with Ambassador Ron Dermer, Israeli Ambassador to the United States of America. How are you, Ambassador? I'm great. How are you? Doing wonderful. Thank you so much for uh, squeezing us in in a very busy agenda. I know uh, Israeli politics is always uh, keeps you on your toes, I'll bet. Well, not much politics, but Israeli diplomacy keeps me on my toes. Diplomacy, yeah. fair enough. Uh, so, Ambassador, uh, as we're doing with all of our guests, uh, some wonderfully inspiring figures in the Jewish world, really trying to get a sense of why, where... Why did you invite me to be on your show? <laughs> well, you know, we had a we had like kind of an open week, so... <laughs> I see, I see. Uh, so... Tell us a little bit about where you're from, what your upbringing was like, and uh, to try to bring us up to, to speed on how you got to where you are today. You want the short version. Um, well, I was born and raised in Miami Beach, Florida. I was born in 1971. Went to a uh, Jewish day school, the Hebrew Academy, affectionately called HAM, Hebrew Academy of Miami Beach. Alexander Gross, is that what it's called? Yes, Alexander Gross, and I actually remember Rabbi Gross very fondly. He passed away, I think, when I was seven or eight. I remember the day. It's one of my earliest memories that Rabbi Gross passed away. He had this infectious smile and was just a wonderful man. And I think it was the first Jewish day school south of Washington, D.C. that, uh, that opened up. So anyway, we, I, I lived only about a block or two blocks away from the school. And I went there from the age of two to nursery school uh, till uh, after senior year. So I was there for 15 years wow. uh, at the same school. How they survived me, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I enjoyed it. I thought it was a great place and had a few uh, wonderful teachers there. And when I, was, uh, when I graduated, I went to um, University of Pennsylvania. I went to the Warden School of Business there. The reason why I applied to, to Warden, that's an interesting story maybe for some of your listeners, because when I was 16, I think it was, a best-selling book came out written by this billionaire entrepreneur <laughs> called The Art of the Deal. This is true. And I read it because I'd never heard of the school warden, but the, the now President Trump, then it was just entrepreneur Donald Trump, wrote this book, The Art of the Deal, and spoke about this unbelievable place. He called it the best business school. This may surprise you. He actually referred to it as the best business school. And it was actually, it's actually the only, I don't know if it still is, but then it was the only Ivy League business school. And he said it was great, and uh, he learned a lot there, wonderful school. And that's how I got interested, because I wanted to go to business school as an undergraduate. And I, um, I applied there, got in. I actually went to, to summer school there before, I think after my junior year, uh, and did well there. And then I applied there in my senior year, I got in. And I was four years at, uh, at University of Pennsylvania, majored in finance and management, uh, there, I might have also had a, a sort of my uh, something in political science. I can't recall. Uh, and after I, I finished at Penn, I, I took a trip to Israel um, for seven weeks. I'd been there twice before. Uh, once when I was five, I don't have many memories of that. And the second time when I was twelve, the year before my bar mitzvah, I went with my family on a you know sightseeing trip. And I went there after college with some friends um, from college and was there for sort of seven weeks. And that probably it had a big impact on my uh, trajectory. That, that's great. And I just want to circle back to your time in Miami. It sounds like it was a very rich Jewish upbringing. Was it an upbringing that was suffused with a lot of pro-Zionist ideology? What was the relationship to Israel at that time? Well, you should know, or I guess your, your listeners may not know, that I, I'm the son of a Sabra. So my mother was born in, in pre-state Israel in Gadara. So I'm sort of, I had that half, the, the, the U.S.-Israel relationship, you can say, is hardwired into my DNA, actually, because my mother was born uh, and raised in Gadara, and she came to the United States as a teenager, and my father was born uh, in New York, in the Bronx. So it wasn't a question of ideology, it was a question, you know, that my mother uh, was effectively Israeli. It's almost like, literally with your mother's milk. So it, it wasn't like it was reinforced all the time. It was just almost, you know, second nature support of Israel. I can't say that I was incredibly interested in the affairs of Israel. Uh, I wouldn't say that at all. And I had a grandmother 
who lived in Israel because my mother's parents obviously came. She was, a, she was I think, uh, 16 when she moved, 15 or 16 when she moved to the United States. And her parents came with her. Uh, but my grandfather died a year after I was born. Mm. And my grandmother was an ardent Zionist. And she came to the pre-state Israel from Poland, from Breslatovsk, which was the city that Begin was from. She actually remembered and would tell me stories about Begin, how what an incredible order he was in Breslatovsk. And she came by herself at the age of 16, I think about 16 or 17, she came by herself to Israel. It's a very interesting story about her because she... She was a person who was as hard a worker as I've ever seen. We used to affectionately call her, and I mean affectionately call her, the human Brillo pad, because she was just prepared to do anything. She was one of these people, my Safta, who would actually take the plate away from me before I was finishing eating so she could clean it. Um, uh, yeah, so she, she was like prepared to do anything, was beneath her, uh, and she came to a kibbutz, I don't remember which one, now with the Gordonia movement, which was a labor Zionist movement, in the 19, this would be the, I think the very late 1920s or the very early 1930s, maybe 1930, 1931. And she came to a kibbutz and she said, look, I'll do every, anything, but I'm not going to work on Shabbat. Wow. Yeah. And of course they tried to put her to work on Shabbat in the first week she was there. She refused. And then she went and she worked in a restaurant next to Gedera. That's how she ended up there. And she met, that proved to be a very fateful decision, her determination to keep the Sabbath because that's how she met my grandfather. She met in this restaurant on the road next to Gadara. He was from Germany. He had left Germany um, at, a, I think, at a fairly young age. I think they wouldn't let him play on the soccer team. This is probably 1932, and he's from the southern part of Germany, around 1932, and he understood that things were not going to be very good for the Jews in Germany at the time, so he left and he came to what was then referred to as Palestine. And... Uh, he met my grandmother on the road there, literally, and she was working in this, in this restaurant and they you know, got married and had three children, my mother being the second one. So for me, I had a grandmother who was living in Israel when I was growing up. She would come visit us usually on Passover and usually, you know, that's how I fell in love with Chalva because she would always bring a lot. Of course, on Passover, <laughs> you can't eat it, which makes it much more problematic. So you, you both want it and you can't eat it, which is a terrible <laughs> combination. Um, but growing up, I had this Safta who was, in, who was in Israel. So I was connected to the country. And I wouldn't say that Zionism was an ideological affair. It was a family affair. It was just part of my identity. Uh, and my mother, I suppose, from time to time, would try to explain to me different things that were happening. But it, it wasn't a huge political focus of my life. And even when I went to college, you know, I was very supportive of Israel because of my mother. But I didn't get involved in all the debates and they weren't like they are now at that point. This is the early 90s. It wasn't as intense. I did have a couple of moments in, during my college years at the University of Pennsylvania. But my, I suppose my political awakening uh, regarding uh, Israel really came probably in that trip that I came after I graduated college and visited for those seven weeks. So you, you took this, it sounds like a really a landmark trip with some friends, seven weeks in Israel. Was that through a particular organization? Was it a program? Was it just sightseeing? What were you doing? And how did that, how was that identity forming for you? So it was not with a, well, I did attend some program. I think the program was called Israelite. It was Rabbi David Aaron. David I don't Aaron, even know. Sure, the old city, sure. Still exists. So yep. I went, it was, that was more for my friends than for me because I had a, um, I think a, a fairly solid Jewish education growing up. And my friends who I went with were Jewish, but didn't really, they had a, a basic Sunday school education. So right. for them, that was important. But I sort of joined them on this program, which I think was maybe maybe three weeks. And then we sort of traveled around the country. But what, what look, what I remember about it, you have to understand, and I suppose your listeners would understand the time. This is in 1993. So this was sort of the end of, uh, of history. Francis Fukuyama wrote an article, you know, after the Soviet Union had collapsed, it was the end of history. Um, there were not great political debates um, in the United States at the time. It wasn't at, like it is now, because it was before 9-11, which sort of returned the United States to history. Of a decade after the Cold War, 
where there weren't really great issues. Uh, it wasn't great foreign policy issues. There were not great economic issues. There were not even great social issues. It was before a lot of the political debates that you have today because the civil rights movement was you know, behind by a couple of decades. And a lot of the new social issues that have popped up did not really, were not as intense then. And just to, to give you a sense or your, your listeners a sense of what it was like, in, in 1996, if I remember correctly, the United States had an election and the two biggest issues were school uniforms and midnight basketball. <laughs> How much would you like to live in a world where the greatest issues facing uh, your country uh, would be uh, midnight basketball and school uniforms? So, so things have changed. And um, at that point, what attracted me to Israel was that it was a country that, in my view, had all these exciting things happen. It was very young. All of its big decisions were in front of it. I got much more interested in public policy in Israel and the issues that Israel was facing. I also was struck very much of the intense infighting within Israel that I found very, very disturbing, I have to say. I was a nice Jewish boy who grew up in Miami Beach. <laughs> Uh, I, and I had my family sort of all across the religious or observance spectrum, if you have. I mean, I had a mother uh, more religious and, and you know, didn't ever cook on a Shabbat, didn't drive on Shabbat. My father was not observant um, wow. and also I had a coach, grew up with a kosher home. My sister is, I would say, is even more observant to, than me today, and I consider myself orthodox. My brother is not observant at all. So I was, and my family's sort of all over the spectrum. So I was very comfortable being with secular religious Jews. It made no difference. I also did not understand until I came to Israel in 1993 that there were differences between Sephardi and Ashkenazi Jews. That was not something I grew up with. You know, I only knew two differences. I knew that Sephardi men put a dollar when they put on their tefillin, on their arm, and Ashkenazi men put a shin. And the other thing was that they had a talus after they were bar mitzvah, and Ashkenazi men would only wear a talus after marriage, which I always thought was worse for the Sephardi men because then <laughs> people would not know who was single. That's and right, you don't know who set up. <laughs> but I never, I, never, I never understood that this was a, you know, that this even could be a political issue because to me there was no, there was no difference uh, really between Ashkenazi and Sephardi, although they have much better food, I have to say. <laughs> but I didn't really know I didn't even understand that there was a difference. And then to come to Israel and to see the differences between Ashkenazim and Sephardim, that that was a wedge issue in Israeli politics, to see secular and religious tensions were very high. This is right a few weeks before Oslo. And just to see a lot of the cleavages in, in Israeli society, in their politics, I was really struck by that. Uh, and Israel is also, if, if probably most of your listeners have been there, but for those who haven't, I mean, Israel's Definitely the most exciting place in the world. I, I said in last Rosh Hashanah in the speech that I gave here that this is very hard for me to admit uh, as Israel's ambassador that for the first time in 69 years, Israel has become a more boring place than America. <laughs> but that's a, that's a rarity, you know, right. just because the news cycle and how exciting things are. Event, a lot of people would probably like to see a lot more calm. But in Israel, you know, things are extremely exciting. Uh, I always say to, to explain it to Americans about Israel that Israelis actually go to Manhattan to unwind and relax. <laughs> it's hard for people to understand that. But for Israelis, they'll tell you that that's true. So very exciting place, a young country, all of these big issues in front of it. And here I was, somebody who was very comfortable in, in, world, in different worlds where there were a lot of fighting in between those worlds. And I started thinking more and more that I wanted to contribute in some way um, uh, to the country. I don't know if in 93 I'd already made a decision to make Aliyah, I would say not, but I, I definitely started to take a much greater interest in Israeli political affairs. I mean, it, it ratcheted up dramatically from next to nothing to, to almost, you know, everything. And the more I learned about Israel, the more disturbed I was by the maligning of Israel. Right. which is something that I had been exposed to a little bit through by my mother in the years previously. But the more I, the more closely I followed events in Israel, and the more I saw how those events were reported and this constant maligning of Israel, uh, the more I actually felt that I wanted to make a contribution to Israel and, and essentially put my big mouth in the service of the state. So it was more and more thinking about, I never thought that I'd be ambassador or something like that. I just thought, hey, Israel's being disparaged. 
a lot of these internal struggles, which I felt very comfortable, you know, trying to help bring different people together, but also the maligning of Israel would really, that was a, no question that instilled in me a sense of wanting to learn more, to defend Israel more. And I think one thing led, you know, led to another. What I really find striking is that the very quality of Israeli society that uh, repels so many people, that sense of strife, polarization, actually magnetized you. What do you think about your kind of composition uh, made that the case that you wanted to sort of run towards the fire instead of away from it, which, which many people do, unfortunately, in today's world, when they see how much difficulty there is among people, among different factions. The polarization, you know, attracted me in the idea that, hey, maybe you could play some useful, positive role in helping to, you know, bring people together. Because, I mean, secular and religious communities at that time were really you know, at each other's throats. And as I said, the Ashkenazim and Sephardim, all these, these fissures within Israeli uh, society. So that connected me to it. But it's also understand Israel is a country that literally is fighting for its life and not just fighting for its life, the very right to survive Israel has to fight for. So it was the combination of these things and I think the excitement of Israel and the fact that most of the big decisions seem to be in front of Israel rather than behind Israel particularly juxtaposed to the United States, which was, you know, it's a young country relatively internationally in terms of some, you know, very old countries that go back many, many, many centuries. But most of its big issues seem to be behind it in the, in the early to mid-90s. Like I said, it was this age where you thought that all of those big issues were behind. So I see this young country, very exciting. Um, a lot is happening there. I get more and more attracted to it and interested in it with all these big decisions ahead. So it would just serve as a magnet, kind of drawing me closer and closer to it. Whereas in the United States, I mean, I have a deep love, uh, affection, admiration. You know, you could choose your word for the United States of America, always have and always will. Uh, but I just got more and more interested in this story about Israel and in playing some part uh, in helping this relatively young country with major decisions ahead of it. And then when I finished that trip, Oslo happened. You know, within weeks of me returning to the United States, and I was never a believer in Oslo. I mean, it would be great to have, for Israel to have peace with all of its neighbors, including the Palestinians, but I never believed that Arafat was gonna be a partner uh, for peace. I, once a guy's a terrorist and he's ordering the murder of innocents, of women and children, I just did not believe that for a second. And I thought this was a big mistake, which made me even more interested. I don't know if it was at that point going to Israel, but certainly more interested in staying involved in Israel and learning the issues, getting the facts, and, and to being able to defend Israel against this sort of tidal wave of uh, a very negative public opinion that was constantly demonizing Israel, even as this peace process was moving ahead. I read that you spent some time after Penn at uh, Oxford. Um, I've interviewed other people. In, in fact, uh, I interviewed a brilliant scientist, uh, professor at MIT, who, told, who grew up with very little Jewish education and said that being at Oxford was actually the galvanizing force for him to visit Israel and to return to his Jewish roots because of the vitriol he experienced there. D did you experience that when you were there? Well, obviously, it was a very different environment than going to University of Pennsylvania, which was, I think, 40% Jewish. I did have a, a story that I, I think I may have spoken about publicly before, where there was one, I took a class at Penn, and it was a Oxford-style debating class. I didn't know at the time I took the class that I'd actually go and debate <laughs> things at Oxford. But at that time, I took a class with Frank Luntz, who was a, sort of an assistant professor there. He's then his you know, he appears on television and is an expert on, uh, you know, public opinion polls and focus groups and things like that. So I took a class with him. And at the beginning of the semester, they were divvying up all of the issues. They had a whole list of issues in like week nine or week 10 or whatever it was. It was the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, and I remember the proposition was Israel should be condemned for its treatment of the Palestinians. That was actually the proposition that was going to be debated in the class. And he asked, you know, who wanted to debate what week. And 
when, of course, it came to week nine or 10 or whatever it was on the Israeli-Palestinian debate, you know, my hand shot up. And since Penn is 40% Jewish, there's probably were 120 or 150 kids in the class. I think just one other hand went up. And I said, yeah, I want to debate it, but I want to debate the Israeli side. I'm only going to do it, I said, if I debate the Israeli side. And he being actually a good professor, I give him credit now in hindsight. I don't know if I thought that at the time when I was, you know, 20 or 21. He said, no, you're going to debate the Palestinian side. Wow. So he put me in that side. And so after every debate, they would um, have a vote of who won from the class. And after my debate, they had a vote. And the vote was overwhelming. Probably, I think, the most overwhelming they had in the class. I had won. Oh, no. <laughs> and I had debated the Palestinian side of the debate. And so I, so I was walking sort of off the stage, and a young woman who was in the class asked me, well, doesn't that make you think? She sort of stopped me when I was on stage. Doesn't that make you think? I said, why? Well, you know, you, we know you're supportive of Israel. So knowing this now, I, I definitely had some sort of consciousness and desire to defend Israel at the time, even when I was at Penn, before I made this trip to Israel. But she said, well, doesn't this make you think? And I said, no, not at all. And so she said, why not? I said, well, because I know something you don't know. She said, what's that? I said, I lied. Okay, so I had presented a false case in the way the Palestinians present their false case. And I said, this is what they do all the time. They present a false case. They try to sell a very emotional argument. They try to take out context. They try to shift things around with dates of when things happen. And they, they change the consequences of things to the causes. The Prime Minister of Israel has written a book about this called The Reversal of Causality. So they will say the refugee problem was because, you know, was, that's what caused the 1948 war, when it's actually the result of the 1948 or the settlement issue caused what happened in 1967 when it's the result of what happened in 1960. So all these different things. And I told him, you know, you really got to know the facts and you have to know when somebody is actually telling you the truth. And it was interesting. Every few years after that, I would run into somebody from that class who told me that they couldn't listen to a Palestinian spokesman since then. They knew that even if they sounded that they were making an argument that they were probably not telling the truth, which is, which is usually what happens, by the way, unfortunately. But when I went to Oxford, the environment was very different. It was, Penn was 40% uh, Jewish. Oxford was very, you know, small Jewish community. When I was there, that was after I had made this trip to Israel. I had worked in Washington for a year for this actually same professor, as fate would have it, this uh, funds. That's who I worked with him after I graduated for a year, which actually is one of the reasons why I ended up dealing with Israeli uh, in Israeli politics after I graduated Oxford is because of the time that I had spent with, uh, uh, with Frank Luntz. But when I went to Oxford, to your question, I definitely had a very strong uh, consciousness. I remember I had a giant Israeli flag up in my room. Uh, this is in October 1994, and a guy who lived right next door walked by, and he saw the Israeli flag, and he came in, and he was the son of the Jordanian ambassador to the UK. Huh. We became very good friends. I don't know if he wants to admit that now. I have <laughs> problem with it, but yeah, a wonderful guy. But I was seen as, you know, the guy who was uh, the defender of Israel there. And I think in my college at Oxford, which probably had two, couple hundred people, I don't think there were more than five or ten uh, students there who would be Jewish at the college. So it's a, it's a very different atmosphere. I can't say it was incredibly hostile. It certainly wasn't friendly towards Israel. I don't think it's what it is like today on campuses. And, and you know, a lot of people knew where I stood and, and not everybody was looking to, to pick fights with me uh, at Oxford. But it definitely created a sense of pride in any chance I had the opportunity to defend Israel or to speak about Israel, I did. And I became the president of, of a very big Jewish society, the L'chaim Society. Shmuley Boteach. You're right. And the president of that society, I think a year before me, or a year and a half before me, was, was, was Senator, now Senator Booker. Then it was Cory Booker. Right. So we shared that in common. We were both the head of this Jewish society. You know, so I had a, you know, I've always had a very strong pride in my Judaism. I'd say that at Oxford, I had not only pride in Israel, but much more knowledge about Israel. And that grew day after day. And with that knowledge actually grew the sense of pride 
that I had in the country. And I think my desire to more and more contribute to it, more and more uh, get involved. And I started working in Israel, in Israeli politics, actually, when I was at Oxford. After my first year at Oxford, I was actually work, I started to work in Israel. So did you make Aliyah right away? or And what was your early time in Israel uh, spent doing? No, what, what happened was, I mentioned that I had worked for Frank Luntz when I was a year. Between Penn and Oxford. Between Penn and Oxford. And I had already, I gotten into Oxford within about three months of coming to Washington. So it was clear to me that I wasn't going to work somewhere else. And I actually started working with Frank because he knew me as a former student. I was, as I said, a finance major. He, at that point, did a survey, the largest baby boomer survey that was ever done on financial savings and retirement. And Frank knows nothing about any of those issues. And he knew that I knew, <laughs> I knew a lot about them. And so he was interested in me helping him with the survey research. Merrill Lynch was his client at the time who did this sort of survey. And I said, listen, I know nothing about survey research. He says, well, I'll teach you how to do survey research. It, you know the financial side. And he also thought that I, had a, I was adept at writing. So he wanted me to do the analysis and um, you know, and write the reports and everything. And I was looking at different think tanks at the time. And I was thinking about working for a think tank in Washington, because I, as I said, I got more interested in public policy overall, and specifically about policy related to Israel. But I was interested in working at a think tank. But he said, look, while you're looking around, come, you know, work for me. And I started to do that project. And, you know, within a few weeks, I'd gotten into Oxford. And so it was clear I was just going to uh, stay there. While I was there, by the way, I worked right next to, then her name was Kellyanne Fitzpatrick. Today, she's Kellyanne Conway. But so I know her, Kellyanne, for 25 years, and she was sharp as a whip then and, you know, sharp as a whip now, and actually a wonderful uh, person. But I worked with Frank for this year, and I mostly did corporate work for him, very little political work. That was more towards the end of different clients that he had had. But when I went to Oxford, he contacted me while I was there because Natan Sharansky, who is a former, you know, he's the Jewish Sakharov. Of, I don't know if the younger generation knows who he is, but he spent nine years in the Soviet Gulag. Yep. And he had contacted someone in Washington who he was friendly with who then con and, and said to them, I'm looking for um, somebody who can help me do survey research and also strategy for this new political party that I'm starting. And that person contacted Frank, because Frank, I think, had worked in Israel uh, in the late 80s. He had done a campaign, I think, for the Likud, when he worked with another famous pollster named Dick Worthland. And he, Frank contacted me because he knew how much I was interested in Israel. And he said, look, I know you're going to go to Israel for the summer. This is the first summer after my first year in Oxford. Are you interested in working for Natan Sharansky? Because I think you could do it, and you're going to be there, and maybe you know, go work for him. And my first, my first response was pretty negative, actually. I did not want to work for Sharansky. And it relates to what I had seen in 1993 when I went into this trip, uh, because I said, well, we got Ashkenazim and Sephardim fighting, we got secular and religious, and then you got left and right, and you got Dove and Hawk, you got all these different groups at each other's throats. The last thing we need is another uh, fissure in Israeli society where you have veteran Israelis and new immigrant Israelis. So he had this whole idea that Sharansky is going to start a party of new immigrants. And I didn't really want to get involved in pulling Israel further apart by just having more polarization. So my first attitude was actually pretty negative. But he said to me, well, you're going to be, I was in Israel that Pesach, actually. And he said to me, I know you're going to be there. Could you, will you go meet him? At least go meet him. And Passover 1995, I met Natan Sharansky for the first time. And it took me all of about 90 seconds uh, to realize that he was a great man, that somebody like this usually doesn't go into politics. I had this said to him something in the first meeting, a line that he has since stole from me without attribution, I have to say. <laughs> I said it would be interesting to work for you because usually – you know, people first go into politics and then go to prison, and you're reversing it. So you're first going to prison and then going to politics. But he, you know, I, I saw him as a, tr as a truly great man who obviously had a heroic uh, episode in the, uh, in the former Soviet Union, sort of standing against the whole state and being willing to go to prison and fighting for his beliefs, and he was released. And it's, it's really a, a remarkable story that he tells in his first book, uh, Fear No Evil. 
which is a wonderful book that I hope uh, your listeners will, will, will pick up. It's much better than the book that I read with, that I wrote with him. But that's truly a great book. And he was a great man. And I realized that right away. So I was very interested uh, in him. And I asked him actually in the first meeting that I had, I said to him, you know, you're going to be a victim of your own success because you're trying to create a new immigrant party in Israel. And what you're saying is you want to integrate them into Israeli society. And one of the reasons you have these fissures, particularly between Ashkenazim and Sephardim today in Israel, is because you didn't have political representation for the Sephardi community in their first years when they came to the state. And I think that was a mistake in hindsight historically, because had there been political representation, I think their transition and their integration would have been smoother. So he said, I don't want for the new immigrants from the former Soviet Union, and there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands who were coming. At that point, there were probably four or 500,000 who would come, and since then, there's probably been another three, 400,000 who have come since then. He said, I want to give them political representation so they can fully integrate into the country. And I said to him, well, the logic would mean that you would then be a victim of your success, because if you're a party of immigrants that is seeking to integrate the immigrants into Israeli society, they will no longer lead, need a party of immigrants. And so I said to him in the first meeting, how long do you think this will last? And he said two or three elections tops. And he was right. And that's another reason what attracted me to him because of what he was trying to do for the, for the new immigrants. So I didn't see him as trying to pull Israeli society further apart. I actually saw him as trying to integrate them. And I think it's a remarkable success story. It's not seen that way in Israel today because people associate success with power. So if you're powerful and you've got a lot of seats and you stay on the political wheel for ad infinitum, you know, you're seen as being very uh, successful. But Sharansky's success was at the political level to help and facilitate those forces that were happening lower down where the new immigrants were integrating. They were going into high tech. They were going into medicine. They were taking their place in Israeli uh, society by them having political representation as a key, at a key moment in this transition. And I think he was very successful and he achieved, achieved his objective. I would say the immigrants from the former Soviet Union integrated into Israel faster than any immigrant population in Israel's history. And I think it's a credit to Sharansky, who was the leader of that party, and then Yuli Edelstein, who today is the Speaker of the Knesset, he was number two. He was number two only because he was three years in prison, not that he was nine years in prison. I think that's how they get. <laughs> they go in order of uh, time served. <laughs> that's right. Time served is your list. But, but I, I worked for him, and that's how I got started working in Israeli politics. I did that in 1995 in the summer, and then I would come back during uh, breaks from Oxford and work in Israel for, we were like eight weeks on and six weeks off. So I would come to Israel for a few weeks and try to help. And the election happened in 96, in May of 96. Actually, the day of the election, I remember I had a final exam uh, <laughs> at Oxford, I think on comparative government. So that 96 election cycle was the first time I was involved in Israeli politics. I moved to Israel a few months after, in the fall, I think of 96. And then I Suppose I started the process soon thereafter of making Aliyah. I think my official date Aliyah was August of 1997, but I was living there for a few months before. This was before, I believe it was before Nefesh Benefesh. So there was no, there was no plane ride. No support there network. No, yeah. There was no landing. There was no government officials all waiting and celebrating. It was just me and the interior ministry and, you know, and getting my new ID card. And still it was, uh, it was a good feeling. Let's fast forward. Obviously, now you're, you're speaking from the embassy in D.C. and over uh, you're in the Golda Meir conference room there. What was it that catalyzed you from that you know, early work with Sharansky and whatever you were doing, making Aliyah and so forth, to where you are today? What, was it a sort of a straight path? Were there a lot of ups and downs? How did that happen? Well, I guess everything looks like a straight path in hindsight. I don't think it's ups and downs or a straight path. I, I, I didn't plan it out. It was sort of one thing led to the other. I worked for, for Natan in 96, and then in 99 again, 98, there were municipal campaigns in Israel for his party. In 99, he ran again for the Knesset. I was brought really to Netanyahu uh, by, I think it was Sharansky or Edelstein, I'm not sure, but Netanyahu then, he had been a, a prime minister and then had left office, right. and he was planning a political comeback, and 
he wanted somebody who had a good understanding of the Russian vote in Israel, the quote-unquote Russian vote, which are the the immigrants from the former Soviet Union. So in Israeli parlance, they're talked about the Hakola Rusi, the, the Russian vote. <laughs> so they had been decisive in a number of election cycles. They were decisive in 92 in electing Rabin. They were decisive in 96 in electing Netanyahu. They were decisive in 99 in electing Barack, a prime minister. And so this was 2000. He was thinking of mounting a political comeback, and he was looking for an advisor who actually understood that community. And I was deemed to be an expert on that Russian vote in Israel because I had worked for Sharansky's party, which was an all-immigrant party. And the only really voters in Israel that I, that I was studying were these Russian voters, whereas people who were do, working for a, a broader party or even strategists or pollsters that were looking at all of Israeli society, they had very few Russian voters who would be in any kind of model. So I had a very good understanding of that community. And I think that Netanyahu must have reached out to either Sharansky or Edelstein and said, look, I'm making a, a comeback and a, do you know anybody? And they recommended me to go see him. And then I saw, so I met him and right away, uh, we sort of hit it off. We saw the world economically, diplomatically on most issues. You know, social issues are not big issues in Israel to begin, but all of the big issues that Israel deals with, you know, I saw the world as, as, as he did. And, you know, I had read his books and everything before I met him. And I thought he was uh, definitely a, a remarkable individual. And we immediately uh, connected. And I was with him in one capacity or another ever since. And that was the summer of 2000, uh, 18 years ago. From there, what happened was, is when he was finance minister, he was finance minister from 2003 to 2005. He appointed me to be economic attache in Washington. It was actually, I ended up coming here in April 2005, and he resigned from the government over the Gaza disengagement that huh. summer. So he was actually only the finance minister for a few months. But he appointed me here, and I served here for three years. When I was finished, I went back to Israel in 2008 and then helped with his campaign, helped as a strategist, you know, manage that, not manager, but as a strategist of the campaign in 2008, 2009. And that was the campaign where he returned to office as prime minister. And then I went into the prime minister's office with him in 2009 and became a senior advisor for four years. And I left in April, 2013. And a few weeks later, you know, he contacted me and said that he wanted to appoint me to be the next ambassador in Washington. I didn't know when I left the prime minister's office that I was going to be here. So I can't really map out a trajectory. I wasn't thinking of the next job. I, you know, was, I think that he had, I think, confidence in me. And I certainly believed and, and continue to believe uh, strongly in him. And I just kept working with him and doing the best that I could in whatever I was uh, assigned to, the tasks I was assigned to. And, you know, I find myself uh, now as an ambassador of Israel to the United States for four and a half years. If you would have told me when I was at University of Pennsylvania that I would be Israel's ambassador to the United States, I would have thought that you're crazy. I would have thought you were crazy to think that I was going to move to Israel, let alone be Israel's ambassador. So I can't say I was, I plotted out this course. I just tried to really serve the best way that I could in the positions that I, were, that I was in. And I was blessed, I think, to have two mentors who were two unique people, other than my mother and father, who was probably my finest mentors. But I was blessed to have Natan Sharansky, who I worked with and then later wrote a book with about democracy, which are Natan's ideas. I just translated Gulagi in Russian into American English. Um, and also Netanyahu, who is, uh, you know, not just a, a formidable statesman, but he's a real a thinker. It's always funny when people will sometimes refer to me as, uh, as Bibi's brain, which was a nickname that some, somebody gave me that nickname. It's like they have no idea how big the prime minister's brain is. He doesn't need <laughs> to have a brain. He's got a pretty, pretty big brain all on his own. But I was blessed to work with two people who are remarkable individuals, but also who I learned a lot from. I learned a tremendous amount from both. There's not a day that you work with Prime Minister Netanyahu that you don't learn from him. And that was the same, um, that was true also of Sharansky. So I was very blessed to have those two individuals as mentors. Do you and the Prime Minister ever debate religious issues? 
Mm, no, I don't, not that I can recall. I mean, the prime minister, you know, one of his sons is religious. Is one of his sons, uh, the younger son, Avner, was Israel's national Bible champion. I heard that, yes. Uh, it doesn't actually come from Netanyahu's side of the family. It actually comes from the prime minister's side of the family. It actually comes from his wife Sarah's side of the family because all of her brothers were national Bible champions. All really? Her, her father was one of the greatest Tanakh teachers in Israel. So he prepared his own children to be these national Bible champions, which is remarkable. And he prepared his grandson to be the national Bible champion. But the prime minister, he learns every week. He studies the Parsha with his son, Avner. And I've seen many times where I've you know, had to come to the house on Shabbat or something, and he's either finishing or starting, and they religiously, literally, take that time away, and he goes with the Parsha with his, uh, with his son, and as, you know, as he said, I think many times, at the beginning, he was teaching his son, and then eventually his son was teaching him. But religious issues, you know, in Israel, it's a little bit different, because it's not debating theology. You got a lot of issues that are tied up with Israeli politics, because you have religious parties and stuff. Right. Uh, but I think he's, you know, he's, he's respectful of, of religion. He's, he's had religious aides and advisors who've worked very closely with him. He's always, he's always been respectful about that. Uh, but debating religious issues, I, I, you know, I don't know if I've, I probably have had, because I've had so many conversations. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of hours where I've talked to him. Uh, but I, I can't remember off the top of my head when we were actually debating, you know, a religious issue. He's a, he's a more lenient rabbi. <laughs> he's definitely a lenient rabbi. He'd be on the Hillel side, not on the Shammai side. It's, it's starting to bring things uh, to, to a wrap. What have you learned about yourself being ambassador? I imagine it brings out so much, so many skills that it must you know, force you to uncover, to employ. Uh, what have you learned about life and about yourself in this role as ambassador to the United States? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. I'm not somebody who thinks about questions like that day in, day in and day out. I kind of just try to move ahead and do my job. Um, I've learned probably that I can take a punch for sure. You never know that until because when you're, you're such a focus and there were different periods where I had to do what I believe was right for the country and you could have to face a lot of criticism and there's but, you know, I guess you never know when you're in the arena and you're facing that criticism whether or not you can face it. Uh, and it doesn't really make me lose sleep, particularly when I know that I'm doing what is the right thing for the country. So that I only I thought that that would be the case. But, you know, a lot of people aren't tested with that because you've never faced it. So when, when you have, you know, piling on on both sides of the pond. Um, and this, this came to the fore more than anything else, probably in the prime minister's speech to Congress, uh, which to me was the highlight of my time as ambassador, the moment that I'm most proud uh, as Israel's ambassador. And when I said that like a year after, people were shocked that I had said that. But it definitely was because the prime minister, in my view, fulfilled his most fundamental obligation to speak out on a matter uh, that affects the very survival of Israel and to to not have spoken out uh, would have been derelict, um, I think, in, in the responsibility and duty that he has, because Israel, as I've you know, said publicly, Israel's one of the gifts that Israel has given the Jewish people is a voice. You know, we used to have to beg others to make our case, and now Israel can make its case. And that's something new that Jewish people didn't have. We used to, if you go back to and the Holocaust, but this was true well before. But if you look at the Holocaust, you had Jews who were had to beg, you know, Polish uh, diplomats and officials to make their case in the corridors of power in Washington. Uh, and this change to being a sovereign country is a change that a lot of people, they still don't even understand what it means when I say Israel has a voice. Because, you know, I'll run into Jews in different communities around the country and invariably somebody will come up, I'll give a speech somewhere, and they'll say, you know, I know a guy who knows the senator, and maybe I can put you two together. <laughs> I say to them, I appreciate it very much, but if I want to speak to the senator, I'll pick up a phone and call the senator's office and try to speak to him. And they'll speak to me, and not because, you know, of who I am, but the country that I represent. I'm Israel's ambassador to the United States. 
The most remarkable thing about Israel's being Israel's ambassador is that Israel has ambassadors, that the Jewish people have ambassadors that can speak up, uh, whether that means in a, in a meeting in Congress or if that means, you know, to go and defend Israel on CNN or uh, the BBC or somewhere else where we have to make our case. But that's something that's new in the history of, Jew of the Jewish people. And, and to me, it is such a unique privilege to be able to do that. And I think about the thing that crosses my mind literally every day, I would say, with all the problems um, that you read about in the newspapers, is I think to myself, our grandparents and their grandparents and their grandparents, going back a hundred generations, would have given anything to trade their problems with ours. So we, we Jews have a unique capacity of seeing the glasses one sixteenth empty. You know, we should. We are uniquely blessed generation that we are living at a time when there's a sovereign Jewish state. We are blessed to have a voice. We are best to have a refuge in Israel that can take in Jews from all around the world. We are blessed most of all by having the power to defend ourselves, which is something new in Jewish history. In Jewish history, we were prominent and we had no power, which is an extremely dangerous combination. And you have to understand also the difference between influence and power. Power is ultimately the ability to defend yourself, the ability to speak up for yourself, the ability to, you know, to allow a Jew from anywhere around the world to show up tomorrow and become a citizen of the state. That's, that's power. And Israel has given us that blessing. And I just think it's such an honor and a privilege to be able to serve as Israel's ambassador. That would probably be true anywhere. But to be able to serve as Israel's ambassador to the United States, the land of my birth, and also a country that I deeply admire and love, is just a unique uh, experience. I feel very fortunate that the prime minister uh, had the confidence in me to uh, to put me here, and I'll continue every day to do whatever I can to strengthen, to both, A, advance Israel's interests. You always have to remember that you're Israel's ambassador to the United States. It's very important. I never forget that. Uh, and the second thing is to strengthen the relations between the United States and Israel, which today, I can tell you, are, are stronger than ever. And I think actually are going to get considerably stronger in the years ahead. So I think the finest uh, days for the U.S.-Israel relationship are still ahead of us, which is great news. Amazing. And final question is just to bring it full, full circle. You mentioned that, you know, early on, what really brought you to Israel was seeing those fissures, seeing those, uh, that polarization and wanting to do something about it, wanting to, to mend those fences. Where do you see the state of, of the Jewish people today in that regard? Do you feel like the society as a whole is closer? Do you feel like some of those fissures are eroding and, and unity is, uh, is developing, is blossoming? Or do we still have a long way to go in, in that regard? Well, what gives me so much confidence about the future is that I have some knowledge of the past. You know, only if you think the world began yesterday, that you start looking at all these problems. And as I said, seeing, seeing the glasses being 116th empty. We're a 4,000 year old people. Uh, to my knowledge, we've had only a 40-year period of peace, which was under King Solomon. It's about 1% of our time. So when they say, you have to say, okay, which exact period do you want to go to? When was we at peace? And one of the things I always say to the prime minister when there's a, an occasional day, this may surprise your listeners, but every once in a while, people are less than grateful for the prime minister's leader. <laughs> and I always will tell them, well, just... You know, think about Moses. He did 10 plagues. He split the sea. He went up for 40 days and 40 nights. And he was eight hours late and got a golden calf. So we're, we're a very, you know, tough people to govern. It actually, the same thing that makes us hard to govern, this anti-authoritarian spirit, the stiff-neckedness of the people of Israel, also, I think, makes us great at high-tech and innovation because we, you know, we're constantly challenging. We've got the chutzpah and also the genius to, to challenge uh, conventional wisdom. But the idea that the Jewish people were some united nation in the past and everyone stood around in a circle and sang Kumbaya, it just, it doesn't come across in Jewish history. The Jewish history is, is periods of, I would say, disunity and great disunity and dangerous disunity. It's like on a, on a spectrum of disunity. We never had that period where everyone together, except for that 40-year history. I mean, you would think 
There was a generation who witnessed miracles. How could that have changed so fast? How could there be so much disunity? How could there be a Korah? How could there be infighting? How could, but it's always happened. We have, of course, the Talmud tells us uh, the destruction of the temple was because of disunity among Sinat Chinam, but uh, also disunity among the Jews. So I think to look back at Jewish history and to say, oh, that was so wonderful, that time that you had before. I don't accept that. And I think this period of Jewish history, as I say, is one where we are uniquely blessed to live at a time when there's a sovereign Jewish state. What we had in the past was great powerlessness. And, you know, whether you were united or not, I don't know if that would have helped you defend yourself against uh, your enemies. And what we have, because we have the sovereign Jewish state, we have so much more to lose. Disunity right now is can be far more dangerous because we have this sovereign state of Israel. And that means unity both within Israel, it means unity between Israel and the diaspora to do whatever we can to maximize that unity. And what I have tried to do as ambassador, frankly, is to remind people a little bit about that history. When I speak, I talk a lot about a Jewish history in my speeches, but to try to make sure that they remain grateful for this precious gift that our generation is given. As I said, a hundred generations dreamed of having this um, privilege of living at a time when there'd be a sovereign Jewish state. And now we are three generations as Israel approaches its 70th year. Three generations have had the privilege of living uh, that dream. And I just try to remind people that with that privilege comes a, a great responsibility and that's to secure that dream uh, for future generations. And the more we remain united, the greater the chance we have to, to secure it. I mean, you obviously you're going to have political differences. Obviously, you're going to have different approaches. Uh, but don't forget that what unites us is so much greater than what divides us. And as long as I think we can keep focus on that and remembering our past, remember the mistakes that we made, remember how blessed we are in the present, I think that will enable us um, uh, to secure the future. Well, Ambassador, you've spoken about us expressing gratitude for the amazing gifts we have today. We are certainly full of gratitude for the incredible service that you do for the Israeli people and for the Jewish people as a whole. I'm so grateful for your, for your service and for your time, for your advancing of the most important and cherished causes in our lives as Jews. May you go from strength to strength and continue to represent uh, the Jewish state and the Jewish people in such a brilliant and wonderful fashion. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.